Drew McWeeny and Scott Weinberg were there in the 1980s as they happened, and now they've embarked on an epic mission to review every major release of the decade, month by month, movie by movie. They're going to dive in deep and soak in it, and they're going to share every minute of it with you. They'll do their best to entertain you along the way. Get ready. It's the 80s all over. Hey, hey, I'm Drew McQueenie, and it is a pleasure to finally be doing this. This is something that Scott Weinberg and I have been talking about for a while now, and I'm very excited because I think we're going to do something great that's going to take you from one end of maybe my favorite decade of film to the other. Scott? Hello. I am the co-host of 80s All Over, and, uh, you know, Drew and I have been good friends for many years, and we see a lot of movies together, and uh, we like to compare notes on what we liked and disliked. You know, there's a lot of 80s nostalgia, and I think when you look at uh, online any day right now, they're celebrating anniversaries of movies that have never had anniversaries celebrated before. But you end up seeing tributes to, like, the same, whatever, 35, 40 titles. I, I think the 80s are interesting because they were so schizophrenic in a lot of ways. And you and I were kids. We were growing up different parts of the country back then. How old were you January 1st, 1980? Uh, I was eight. From the 80s, I was eight to 18. And... I consider myself like a grade A, perfectly aged 80s geek. The 70s almost felt like mom and dad working really hard, like Hollywood was reinventing itself, and they were really working hard to make challenging, dark, unique, new kinds of movies. And then the 80s were almost like, oh, we have kids, let's have a party now. And I think you see the tail end of the the 70s still. You see movies where it's still clearly the 70s to this filmmaker, while somebody else is already on to whatever the 80s is starting to become. And it's it's kind of that collision that makes especially the first half of the 80s really interesting. And then it starts to change into something very different. And I, I think if we go month by month, we go film by film, and we're going to see that interesting sort of shift from one film culture to another occur over the course of this podcast. And you had mentioned this to me a couple of days ago. What I hope we can do is talk about things we liked back then in comparison to how the movie world is today and not approach films with blindingly rose-colored glasses. For all the fluff and maybe forgettable spectacle that went through the 80s, we had a kind of renaissance. We had a new Carpenter almost every year. We had a new Cronenberg almost every year. We watched the rise of Rob Reiner. We saw the evolution of Steven Spielberg. And that's the decade that instilled in me a movie love that precluded video games. I stopped playing my Atari mostly. Uh, my grandmother would record movies off HBO and give the VHS to my mom and knew that that was my thing. And if, if there was a movie, Towering Inferno was on two nights in a row. Guess what? That's what we were doing. Uh, so we're going to begin this month. We're going to do our spotlight films. And uh, the month that we're doing is December 1979. So you're at the very end of the decade. And one of the biggest releases of the month, uh, by any definition, I remember comic. I remember the comic adaptation of this before I remember seeing the film. It was as hyped as a movie could get in 1979. Um, and yet for years, this was synonymous with disasters, with just giant bombs that people hated 
Scott, I know you're very fond of the movie, so I'm going to let you kick this off. What's your first pick for our first episode? I have long been a fan of Steven Spielberg's 1941. I am well aware of its reputation as both a box office, critical, and audience bomb. And while I completely acknowledge all the the problems that people have with the film, that it's too loud and it's plotless and maybe a, a barely connected series of sketches and the sketches maybe are kind of deficient of punchlines. I get all those complaints. I, li- I really do. But every time 1941 was on TV, we watched it. It was usually over two nights, like a Monday night and a Tuesday night, because it's a kind of a long film. Yeah, six and a half hours, I think. Oh, stop. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the what the theatrical cut I I don't have it right in front of me that's embarrassing the cut that exists on television especially the two night cut there's yeah. stuff that wasn't in the theatrical release yeah there's was- extra scenes there's alternate takes to replace stuff that they couldn't show on TV so the version you know it's not even quite the Spielberg director's cut which also existed on Laserdisc at one point you kind of fell in love with that weird middle ground that exists and it really doesn't for film fans now, the TV cut. Yeah. TV cuts were often not controlled by the filmmaker at all. It was the studio and it was the TV division and they just put anything they found into that thing to make it fit for the TV time slot. 1941, for the record, according to Box Office Mojo, cost $35 and grossed about $92 worldwide. Now, that is by no means a hit, even if you accept the you have to make double your budget. Well, there have been there have been so many releases of this thing, although surprisingly, there's not a great it's part of a Blu-ray box that you can get. But as a standalone, it still doesn't get its full respect. And here's the thing. I'm kind of with you on this. I, I find the script by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale really interesting. And nobody was doing farce at that point. Uh, farce is very, very hard. And what I love most is the energy and the choreography of it. There's a fight riot sequence at a dance that breaks out that is one of the most beautifully choreographed in terms of camera and performer sequences that Spielberg has ever done. And it is him just playing. You can just feel how giddy he is to have this many extras and this big a set and this many cameras and this much chaos. And he's having a blast doing this stuff. There are so many set pieces in the movie without having much of a plot. There are uh, There's a Japanese sub spotted off the coast of a California town, and everyone goes apeshit, uh, and it plays very much like a 1942 screwball comedy on such a loud, some would say overloud, expensive scale. I can guarantee that all three of them, Zemeckis, Gale, and Spielberg, were all fans of It's a Mad, 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 oh, yeah. Mad, 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 Mad World. Yeah. I, I think I got them all in there. There's a lot of funny bits and funny moments in the movie, thanks mainly to the actors. Uh, Wendy Jo Sperber is really funny in this movie. Always. Yeah, uh, her like- Eddie, Deason, Eddie Deason on the Ferris wheel is... Boy, oh boy, oh boy. A Ferris wheel. I love Ferris wheels. Hey, do we get to ride this all night? Just to the end of the hey, show. Hey, wait a minute. We don't have to pay for this, do we? Just remember, we're working for the government now. It's that performance of his is It's him really- and Murray Hamilton together. It's yeah. great. 1941 is a fascinating anomaly in Spielberg's filmography. To me, he said it was a a torture to make. He still seems to have some kind of fondness for it in interviews and and archival footage. It depends Uh, on which interview, though. This is the truth about Steven Spielberg, and this is something we'll get into as we go through the rest of this decade. He feels about his movies 
however the public tells him to feel about his movies. If a movie is reviled at a particular moment, he'll take the public side on that. And then if they come back around, so will he. And 1941 is the best example of that, where for years, I don't think you were allowed to even mention it to him. And then once the Laserdisc came out, and Laurent Bozero did a phenomenal job of putting together a, a huge Laserdisc edition of this movie with behind-the-scenes stuff and uh, with footage from the TV cut and all sorts of different things and commentaries. It's tremendous. It's really one of the best uh, Laserdiscs that's ever done. It sort of rehabbed the film's image. And I remember at that point, suddenly Spielberg liked the movie again and started giving interviews where, no, he admitted that there were things he really liked about it and that he was proud of. Considering what a enormously gifted and undeniably influential storyteller he is now, I still think the public's opinion of his films carries huge weight with him. It still holds up as just maniacal silliness. Part of you is just stunned that this much effort was put into something so frothy and goofy. Uh, we're discounting the, the participation of John Milius. I think Milius had the initial idea. As I understand it, it was him that said, you know, there was this real incident where people were panicked about Pearl Harbor and everybody was convinced the Japanese were on their way to America and everybody on the coast of California went insane for a little while. Right. And I right. think Milius was the one that found that story and sort of broke it. But it's Zemeckis Gale, the screenplay that everybody loved. And it was legendary. Like, that was one of those scripts where everybody had read it. Everybody was talking about it. When Spielberg signed on to make it, it was because it was a hot shit script and everybody See, wanted to make that movie. doesn't make any sense to me because I am one of the film's biggest fans. And even I would say it's not in the screenplay, at least not based on the film. It's based on man maniacal moments and, and pinpoint funny actors. I think then that's maybe why Spielberg didn't go back to full-on comedy, because that script was beloved. Everybody who read it said, this is going to be a huge hit, this is hilarious, this is great. And Spielberg signed on to make it, and then it came out, it laid there. One of the craziest parts about this is the following year, Airplane came out and had that great opening parody of Jaws. Spielberg did it first. Spielberg made fun of himself before anybody else got a shot with the opening of 1941 and it's because it's Spielberg it's about as precise a parody as you're ever going to see in a movie yeah yeah it's always funny to note that they are very similar jokes but but Spielberg did do it first <laughs> so yeah. it's ultimately even as a fan I would not put it near the upper echelon of Spielberg's best but if you're going through his body of work I think you'd be pleasantly surprised by how goofy fun it is. And like you said, the dance sequence is stunning. The music is great. The cast is fun. And, you know, there, there's a lot to enjoy there. And I don't think that's mostly nostalgia. It's partially nostalgia. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let's move on to the uh, the second film, which is my first pick. Uh, when you talk about being at the upper echelon of somebody's work, this might be it. This might be the the single best performance by somebody I consider one of film's great icons. This is the Hal Ashby film, Being There, starring Peter Sellers. This is a elegant, sharp, brutally satirical look at, you, you can't help but look at what's happening right now politically and then look back at Being There and realize how prescient that film is. It really nailed the idea that people project onto politicians everything they want 
and they don't actually look at the person that's in front of them. They're voting for the things they want from that person. They're voting for the idea of that person. And what Peter Sellers plays in this movie is this perfect blank that everybody else projects everything onto and reacts to. And he is nothing. He brings nothing to it, which sounds like that shouldn't be a great performance. But to be able to play that, to be able to play a genuine, complete innocent who has no opinion, who has no knowledge, an incredibly difficult balancing act. And I love Sellers. I love the Pink Panther movies. I love the broad Peter Sellers. I don't think he ever gave a better performance, though, than he did in this film. Being there was on HBO constantly when I was younger. And I remember loving Peter Sellers because we used to sit up and watch the Pink Panther sequels, and I love those. But even as a kid, I knew being there was going over my head. I was not smart enough to get it, but I was just smart enough to know that I would in a couple of years. And, of course, I discovered it when I was probably 18 or 19. One of the best things about satires is that they remain evergreen if they're well made. And that's yeah. what being there is. That's what network is. That's what Dr. Strangelove. That's what idiocracy is. If it's a mirror of society, it will always be fresh and being there. Right, because, yeah, he's not playing a specific person. They're not targeting one person with this movie. They're targeting the entire idea. If you haven't seen the movie, Peter Sellers plays a guy named Chance, who is a gardener at a, a person's house. And uh, he has been there for his entire life. He is a child in every way, utterly cut off from the outside world except for television. And he watches television, but it's like he doesn't absorb it. It is this thing that happens in front of him, and none of it sticks to him. He's completely pure. It's like the opposite of The Truman Show. Yeah. Excuse me. Could you please tell me where I can find a garden to work in? A garden? What's wrong, man? There is much to be done during the winter. I should start the seeds for the spring and work the soil. Bullshit. Who sent you here, boy? Did that chicken shit asshole Raphael send you, boy? No. Mr. Thomas Franklin told me I must leave the old man's house. He's dead, you know. Dead, my ass. So when the person dies, he wanders out into the world and immediately begins to fail his way upward by virtue of the fact that everybody he meets believes him to be smart believes him to be uh, possessing some quality that they need. They surround him with a phenomenal cast. My favorite scene in the movie is when Shirley MacLaine decides she's going to seduce him. She plays a one-sided sex scene where Peter Sellers does nothing and almost reacts not at all. And she goes from, should I make my move, to climax, completely playing both sides of the scene. She's yeah. brilliant in that movie. And that sequence alone is one of the finest pieces of, of comedy acting I've ever seen between two people. Look, Hal Ashby was just he was very near the end of what he was doing, his most fertile period as a filmmaker. But right here at this moment, he had just so much control and he had the perfect collaborator and sellers who desperately wanted this to be right. The voice he created, the look that he perfected for the film uh, sellers, just physically what he is. Uh, he's unrecognizable. It doesn't look like the Peter Sellers you've seen in anything else ever, which, of course, was part of his gift. He, he would disappear into these films. And like you said, it was an omnipresent cable movie. I think even if you don't know the film very well, if you were an 80s kid, you probably remember the last shot. You probably saw that 
as you tuned in to see whatever you were waiting to see now. Oh God, book two or whatever. Oh God, don't even say that. Are we gonna <laughs> let's switch gears? Let let switch switch gears from something sublime to something very silly. And I have a point to make. Sometimes, uh, like Fred Gwynn said in Pet Cemetery, sometimes dead is better. If you remember a weird movie that you loved as a kid, don't revisit it. And that movie, the movie we're discussing is Scavenger Hunt. There's enough for everyone. Divide it up, you still have some. Which was kind of like a madcap, all-star farce that was shooting for the It's a Mad, 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 Mad World hook as well. Who knew that this that Mad Mad World was quite that influential? I bet when it came out, it was probably a huge deal to young filmgoers who saw that, and it probably for a lot of them was like a introduction to a lot of the comics that were in it. And I would imagine it was a, a giant touchstone. I remember uh, from Dave's video when I worked there, I was there when the Laserdisc uh, Super Edition of It's a Mad 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 World came out, and I remember all the guys who would come in to buy it who were super freaks for it. For example, Brad Bird, giant fan of that film. And I remember the week and a half before it came out, it's all he talked about when he came to the store was just that's coming out. What's on it? He wanted to see the oh. extras. He couldn't wait to listen to things. But it's a huge. You're right about the cast. It's Richard Benjamin, Scatman Crothers, Ruth no, Gordon, Cleavon Little, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Richard Mulligan, Tony Randall. Yeah, and again, to our younger viewer audience members, they'll know Schwarzenegger, but that might be one of the only names they know. Ultimately, Scavenger Hunt was, you know, a movie basically made for kids. Vincent Price is an old man who dies, and he's going to leave uh, his estate to the team that wins this crazy all over the city, uh, all in one day scavenger hunt. It's simple, but I love that premise for a movie. I wish there were more attempts at this kind of a story, as simple as it is, because it's they're all tied together by one cohesive thread, but then you can also be episodic and silly. Um, and I remember laughing my butt off at Scavenger Hunt when I was, what, eight or nine years old, and I revisited it three or four years ago. I can see why I liked it so much as a kid, but... It's got a leaden pace for a movie that's supposed to be so manic until the end. The, the, the last 10 minutes has some nice energy. But there's no real sense of we better hurry, we got to get out of here. And, and it might be more fun if the characters, you know, came across each other a little bit more often. It feels so modular. And, and for every joke that works, like there's a whole bit with James Coco and Cleavon Little as a, a team of, of servants, uh, butler, maid, cook, etc., who are trying to win the estate that they've been taking care of and they have some pretty funny slapstick bits but there's a lot of dead air in between and uh, if anybody ever says you'll always love a movie if you loved it as a kid that's just not true <laughs> it, you know it's kind of a shame because i i really like michael schultz the uh the guy who directed it his list of movies uh, he made some ones i really like like i like car wash he did some really good interesting work with uh, richard pryor in grease lightning and which way is up and he did coolie high which was the inspiration for what's happening. No. He also did Bustin' Loose. Yeah. He hit a sort of moment where theatrical features were off to him at that point, and then he moved into TV, and he still does TV. He directs Arrow, and he directs tons of shows now, and he's a hard-working TV guy. But that was really his big moment theatrically. Was Car Wash was a giant hit and bought him room to make 
several years worth of comedies for the big screen. I think The Last Dragon. Yeah. Do you did you see uh, Scavenger Hunt in the theaters, Drew? I did not, and it's and I have not seen it since cable. But I remember it being vaguely omnipresent on I think Showtime, and I th- would guess since probably 1985. I haven't seen a, a video release of it. I haven't seen it on TV. Nothing. And, you know, it, it just goes to show, you know, uh, things you love when you're 10, you're probably not going to necessarily love when you're 35, 38. Uh, well, and also some of these movies disappear. They just vanish. This is one of those films. I bet nobody knows who owns it. I doubt it ever comes out again. I doubt we ever see another release of it. One thing that stands out is Richard Mulligan dressed like a mummy, stumbling his way through a museum. Uh, and falling off terraces. That guy had such a skill for for physical comedy. Richard uh, Mulligan is one of my very favorite people. We'll get into some Richard Mulligan movies later in this decade where we'll really talk about him, but he was a gift. Uh, yeah. He was an uncommon comic gift. And now we're going to talk about one of the best comedies of the year with, with this next one, and a, a comedy that I still absolutely wall-to-wall adore. I, I can't believe this was in theaters the same time as being there in 1941 and the other films we're going to discuss this month. Steve Martin's The Jerk. And it's the breakthrough moment where he went from being the most popular stand-up comic working to suddenly also being a movie star. Uh, it began his collaboration with Carl Reiner, which gave us several truly phenomenal classic comedies, including The Man with Two Brains, uh, The Jerk, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Their chemistry together is one of my favorite filmmaker-director teams of the 80s. And The Jerk is a great example of that. Uh, Reiner knew exactly how to make a space for the kind of comedy that Steve Martin did, which was smart, but it was so smart at being stupid. He was playing a very, very dumb character and writing incredibly clever jokes to support that character. My God, that's tricky to pull off. And it's tricky to even conceptually put together. So I think the script uh, had to really be very tight and very smart and have the world figured out. And then on top of it, the execution by Reiner is fantastic. I always think of the uh, the sequence where the guy comes to the house looking for money and he shows them the short film about Mexican cat juggling. I love not only that it is Steve Martin playing the guy inside the Mexican cat juggling documentary, but the way Carl Reiner shoots it to look like this illicit thing that was captured covertly. And Reiner really sells every joke in this film. Martin has never been hungrier than he is here. And it was so clear from the first frame of this film. He knew exactly how to build a character and and really sell it for the entirety of the movie. Steve Martin was my idol growing up. I still admire him greatly. Uh, I think he is a unique talent in acting, writing, comedy, uh, also a brilliant musician, in my opinion. I grew up, my babysitters were Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, you know, all those guys, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor. If those guys were in a movie, any of them, that was movie was coming home with me. I didn't care if I didn't get what some kind of hero was about when I was 12 years old, but it had Richard Pryor or Steve Martin or Chevy Chase. I was taking it home. And Steve Martin was my favorite of those guys because he was both kind of like your friend's cool dad, but then he could also be ridiculously silly and be cool doing it. We can all be silly and spazzy and look embarrassing, but to be silly and be cool while you're being silly is... The best way to describe the evolution of what he did comedically here is it's like if the Jerry Lewis movies 
because Jerry Lewis played that kind of insane, manic, high-energy character. It's as if, in the middle of one of those movies, Jerry turned to the camera and winks and lets you know, I'm aware how ridiculous this is. And that's what Steve Martin always had, was that sense that as weird and as crazy as the comedies got, he was very aware of that silliness. He was orchestrating that silliness. And I love the world of the jerk. I love how strange the logic of that world is. I love the lawsuit that ends his career. I love the invention that makes his career. Yep. And Um, what's fun is that it kind of predates the like the Pee Wee Herman character. You can't always stretch a single line or a single joke into a movie. And I think what Martin and Reiner did really well in this one, and Carl Gottlieb, one of the uh, co-screenwriters, is they figured out how to make Naven's journey from A to Z an actual movie and not just a series of disconnected sketches. Yeah, and when you have a talented comedian, the first movie that a studio is going to want to do, most likely, is a vehicle. You're not going to see Steve Martin in a plot-heavy movie his first time out. You're going to see Steve Martin shine, show off his talents uniquely that we, you know. Uh, And so while it is in every way just a vehicle, it could be called the Steve Martin movie. But it's also a good movie. It is, like you said, he has an actual arc. There's an actual kind of a quest journey. The dog is great. Bernadette Peters is Everybody knew at this point that Bernadette Peters was a fine actress and a great singer. But to see her take to bald-faced, goofy farce with such a poker face, it's like she was born to play against the absurd, weird humor of Steve Martin. And I'll, I'll let you close out the jerk, Drew, but one of my favorite things about this project is that we'll be able to chart the best years. I still love Steve Martin to this day, of course, but we'll be able to chart the best years of his movie career or his early movie career uh he did a lot of good stuff in the 90s but the 80s is when a whole generation fell in love with him but now let's talk about the rest of what was out that month and what i'd like you to do scott is imagine that you're at a you've got this list in front of you here so imagine you're at a multiplex and it's december of 1979 definitely saw the black hole the black hole is one of those movies that uh, as much hype as you could have back then this movie had It's interesting that it came out the same month as Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, They were both chasing Star Wars, and it was clear that Disney had decided, oh, shit, we got to make a movie like Star Wars, and then went into their own catalog and said, "Uh, but we'll do it by remaking 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is a fucking weird choice. It's a very strange template if you're trying to make Star Wars because there is no Nemo in Star Wars, and he is such a dark, different disturbing character. The Black Hole is almost a horror film, the way it's structured. It's closer to a kid's version of Alien than it is a kid's version of Star Wars. Yeah, it's a problematic film, man. I, I Even as a kid, if you had asked me what I thought of it, I'd have been like, I forget. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's yeah. like, it really feels like Disney was focused on the poster, the toys, and getting in on the Star Wars craze as quickly as possible. I think the film is barely comprehensible. Oh yeah. Um, I think the ending, while controversial, and I'm sure some people love it, respect. I think the ending is a complete disaster. No pun intended. Is that a pun? Kind of. I'd like to say it has good effects for '79. Not eh. so much. Not eh. so much. Eh. And, uh, well, it's got Ernest Borgnine. That's something. That ain't nothing. Ernest Borgnine makes anything better. Oh, it's boring. But then again, <laughs> to be fair, so is the other giant sci-fi movie that we'll talk about from this month, which is Star Trek The Motion Picture, or as Harlan Ellison famously coined, Star Trek The Motionless Picture. And you want to talk about a movie that feels like it's 11 hours long, especially Man. when I saw it at 
nine years old. Did you like it as a kid? No. I walked out you, of the theater you like, bitterly you like, disappointed. You like it now? I like it slightly more. Here's what I like about it. Robert Wise has a sense of scale that I don't think anybody else has ever had in the Star Trek universe. The first time you see the Enterprise in Star Trek, the motion picture, the Enterprise is fucking gigantic. It's huge. It's beautiful. It's the, When you think of a, almost any spaceship in a movie now, there's no sense of scale. You don't feel like awe when you see them. Wise shoots that first sequence of the Enterprise with a genuine sense of awe that I think is missing in almost anything else related to Star Trek. But as a movie, oh my God, it's nightmarish at times. And the, the trip into V'ger is... I don't think Robert Wise wanted to make 2001 because I don't think Robert Wise thought of himself like a Stanley Kubrick. I think the problem with the Star Trek, and I like it more than you do, and I'll get to that in a second, but I think the problem with Star Trek The Motion Picture is that it wanted to be both Star Wars and then like the early 70s sci-fi, like Silent Running or Soylent Green at the sure. same time. One of the most common complaints that we have is films are missing plot. There's plot holes and there's missing scenes and characters change motivation so quickly it didn't make sense. And that's usually a sign of late editing. This is just the opposite. I, I think that Star Trek, the motion picture, you, you cut it down to the essential 110 minutes and it's a damn good adventure movie. And I think what the film does get right is the uh, reunion of the characters, the, oh, the, yeah. Agno yeah, the acknowledging that they've gotten older, the affection, like you say, that they have for each other, and getting them all to click back in together, and then getting back into the ship, which is, like Kevin Smith says, you know, enterprise porn. It really is. But then once the actual meat of the adventure story comes in, it gets all of that religiously vague, ethereal, you know. Well, that, that's the problem is when you talk about the early 70s, more issue-based science fiction, well, that's Star Trek, the original show. That's what that was. Very true. Was very allegory. true. Yeah. And so I think that it was very natural to want to do an allegory. And they went through a lot of drafts of trying to figure out what, what story to tell. But the problem was Star Wars. And Star Wars had had recalibrated what people wanted. Suddenly, instead of the Rod Serling end of the pool, it was back in the Flash Gordon end of the pool. And that's totally opposed ideas. So I don't think you can make one movie that's both of those things. Ever since Star Wars was created, though, it has been screwing up the definition of what Star Trek is, whether it's Abrams doing it or whether it's Robert Wise doing it. I would recommend it. I like the film more than I dislike it, but it does have problems, but it's also kind of sweet and majestic and yeah. even as a guy who wasn't raised on the Star Trek show it was just like novel to see these characters on the big screen I only knew them from random episodes of Star Trek that I saw there were some big like adult grown-up movies in the theater that month and of them like the one that I have come to adore and love and revere is all that jazz the Bob yeah. Fosse film I was introduced to it in college I'm embarrassed to say but as a kid I would have never watched that the electric well, horseman like talk, my experience was I started at this was the exact age where I started agitating to go to the grown-up movies with my parents and I didn't care what they were. I was like, anything I can go see, I'll anything I get away with, I'll go see. Yeah. So I saw the Electric Horseman in the theater. I genuinely didn't understand what the hell I was sitting through. I, I saw it on HBO. Like it was another one that was very, very frequently on HBO. And my sister and I probably saw it. I couldn't tell you what it's about. I don't yeah. remember anything about it. Kramer versus Kramer is one that I saw with my parents. I was too immature to enjoy Kramer versus Kramer, but I was mature enough to get why my parents wanted to see it. It was a good story about divorce, and that was all, that's all everybody was talking about was my, my, my dad got divorced, and 
I'm the same way. I went and I saw Kramer versus Kramer in the theater with my parents. And I had uh, the reaction I had to it was I I liked it. I thought it was interesting. I didn't even understand what I liked about the scenes between the father and the son. I just thought they were really well played and interesting. I didn't get dramatically why it was an interesting arc to watch him grow into being a better father or deal with his own anger. Or I mean, I didn't understand any of that. But I remember the scene where uh, Joe Beth Williams is completely naked and confronts the yes. kid in the hallway in the middle uh, of the that night. That was, I think it was a VHS tape. My mom was dying to see it. And my dad conceded and let her, you know, it was like the VCR was like his toy. It was a big deal that he conceded to get a, a family uh, movie we could watch as a family. I wasn't mature enough to really get it. But I knew it was good. Like, I knew that my parents were into it, and it was telling a fair story about divorce and, you know, the, the painful things that it does to adults and this poor kid. But I, I never connected with it at 10, 11 years old. I saw it many years later, and it's a good melodrama. It's a well-intentioned, well-made melodrama. But I was the opposite of you. You're a few years older than me, but even when I was your age, I was all about genre. I, I Comedy, horror, sci-fi, action, you know, uh, I didn't get into drama until I was probably in middle school or high school. Uh, my whole thing was I never know what's going to be amazing. So I just started agitating to get into anything. I didn't have that revelation until I was like 14 or 15. I, I think might have been something like either One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or w Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, one of those two films made me go, I like drama now. I will watch something that doesn't have jokes or boobs or monsters or guns. I will watch drama now. And that was my movies like that. As a kid, drama, no interest. It's funny to see what was playing in theaters at the same time. Like, I love that both Roller Boogie and Skate Town USA came out in the same month. Yep. I remember Cuba, not because I saw it, but I remember the posters. And I remember the Sean Connery poster. And anytime we went to see anything in the theater, because that month we saw The Black Hole, we saw Kramer versus Kramer, we saw Star Trek. And every single time I remember going by the Cuba poster. And my dad would stop and look at it. He seemed interested in that movie, so I wanted to know why. And he told me that that was James Bond. And that was one of the first times I remember hearing that Connery had been James Bond. Because I had only seen Roger Moore films up until that point. Do you remember when you thought Roger Moore was cooler than Sean Connery as a James Bond? Oh, of course. Yeah. I absolutely... Well, I spy who loved me in Moonraker. Yeah, totally. I wouldn't even listen. I'd be like, oh, he's older and boring. I think I was 17 or something when I finally watched a, a Sean... 16, maybe, when I saw... Goldfinger, he's the man, end of story. 10 to 15 to 16, you're Roger Moore guy. <laughs> yeah, and this is that era where Sean Connery couldn't figure it out. He, he wasn't really a movie star still, but he kind of was, but he wasn't. I find that really interesting. Like, th there's an era where Sean Connery just sort of fell off the edge of the planet. You know what? I, you know what, Drew? It wasn't really an era. I think it was he did a, a handful of films, and I think he knew that for the next five, six, whatever years, I'm going to be seen as nothing but James Bond. And we'll get to that moment. We'll get to that moment a little later in the decade where he finally started putting it together again. Um, one of the most influential horror films of all time came out this month, a movie that yes. I'm sure neither of us saw for a hell of a long time nope. after this. I've written thousands of horror film reviews. I consider myself pretty astute in horror cinema knowledge. I freely admit that I didn't see Cannibal Holocaust until I was probably 16, 17, 18 at the local video store, they had a lot of the, what the our British friends would call the video nasties. They had blood-sucking freaks and Mother's Day. They had Evil Dead. They had a lot of the even more obscure ones. And the one that this video village, they never had Cannibal Holocaust. It just wasn't there for me. 
So, uh, you know, when, you know, you end up going to a different video store or it's finally available, it's almost like a brand new film. It's also kind of easy to lose track of Cannibal Holocaust, Zombie Holocaust, Jungle Holocaust. Yeah. And as a kid, I never could remember which one was which. I didn't see it until I, I would guess later than that. And it was because the title always made me feel nauseous. Like I, that title really bothers me. It's such a great exploitation film title because it's genuinely unsettling. If somebody yeah. promises you you're going to see the cannibal holocaust, dude, that's a promise that that title is making to you the same way the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was. And I remember the first time I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I was afraid to press play. I'm going to be different on the other side of this. It's going to mess me up. I don't know what's going to happen. I think we could both agree that the film turned out to be for all its ugliness an effective Oh, it's good. It's well done. It, and it, it's more influential than people think. I mean, we won't that's get That's what into, I said, yeah. yeah. Hugely influential. It is It is one of those movies that whether you've ever seen it or not, you've seen it. You've absorbed its DNA through other films. And it's also a, a direct progenitor or ancestor of the found footage horror film. Now, have you ever seen Demonoid, the other big horror film from that month? Demonoid, Messenger of the Deep. It was an old media VHS title. It looks like it was shot in the trunk of a Buick. <laughs> uh, that's I love pretty those. much these things would come in I think Tuesdays was the VHS day I could be wrong but I think the new movies came out on Tuesday and I used to uh, go home after school like 7th 8th grade and I would put away uh, the VHS tapes and they would let me rent movies for free I was like yeah. slave labor it was great and you know whatever was new that week if unless it was rented out of course I would rent and I'm sure De I know Demonoid was one of them and I still remember the media VHS cover, beautiful demon uh, with a whip, I think. The other thing that came out that month, and this is one that I don't think you've ever seen, but I was, I became a big fan of it much, 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 much later. Um, I was late to the party on this guy. Uh, was The Castle of Cagliostro, which was Miyazaki's first theatrically released American film. The way we really knew it in the 80s, and I don't know if you, you remember this or not, like Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, there was another arcade game that used a laser disc to show you an animated sequence and then you'd have to do the jump or the hit the button. But it was with a Japanese animated, what looked like a spy film. And I forget what the game was called in American arcades. But the footage that they used, all the animation they used, was from this movie, The Castle of Cagliostro, which is a Lupin the Third spy comedy adventure movie. And dude, if you ever get the chance now, go back and find this one and watch it. It is... Pure pleasure is animation. If you like Spielberg's Tintin movie, this is Miyazaki doing that kind of action-adventure comedy. But I mean, you look at that. What a weird lineup. You, you go to the movie theater, you see all that jazz and the black hole and Cuba and Demonoid and Cannibal the Holocaust. Jerk. And these wouldn't have all been at the same theater. Some of these would have been drive-in movies. Some of these would have just been in the big mainstream theaters. There's a definite sea change happening. Otto Preminger, one of his very last films, called The Human Factor came out that month. There's a mole and somebody's looking for the mole inside the spy agency. And it is of a different time. It feels like a movie that was made 25 years earlier. John Huston's movie, Wise Blood, came out that month. And you've got guys like Brad Dourif and Harry Dean Stanton and Ned Beatty in it. And it's really, really 70s. It doesn't feel like an 80s film at all. And I don't know how the movie did. I didn't see it until 15 years later, 20 years later. Uh, same thing with Zulu Dawn. That was a movie I caught up with a long time after that. 
But just you look at how strange that lineup is to have those movies and Star Trek and the jerk in the theater at one time. Um, it kind of tells you what the nature of theatrical movie going was like right then. It was really all over the place. I wonder how many of these films, if you just could like transport the list of films to today, how many of those would get theatrical releases? I highly doubt that Roller Boogie and Skate Town USA would be wide theatrical releases. Demonoid, Cannibal Holocaust, no. You know, even something like uh, Kramer versus Kramer now could easily be a Magnolia movie that gets like a day and date release. It's a very different landscape. This is kind of the ground we're going to cover as we go through the 80s. So we're going to start the actual podcast with our first episode next time, and that's going to be January 1980. We're going to start with where we were, where we were living, where we were seeing these films, and we're just going to go through month by month. We've got some big movies coming as soon as 1980 began. If you know what's coming, great. If not, don't look ahead. Just go with us week to week and be surprised by what came out together and and enjoy this ride with us, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think, Scott, we're going to trip over memories that I bet we haven't dredged up in years and years and years, things that we'll remember about these films and about where we saw them and when. Yeah, and, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, it'll it'll uh, strike a chord with younger moviegoers who are, you know, even though we're living in a much faster digital world of instant movies here and there, uh, I bet when we say... Uh, the night my dad decided we're all going to go see The Empire Strikes Back and he got off work so we could do it. Every kid can relate to that. It doesn't matter if it was Toy Story 3 or Empire Strikes Back or The Wizard of Oz. Everybody has those moments where my mom let me stay up late to watch The Blues Brothers. For you, it might have been Anchorman. But everybody yep. has those moments and that's part of what we're trying to you know, celebrate and hopefully shed some light on some some great films from the 1980s that maybe you haven't thought about in a while. So, uh, guys, we will see you on the very first episode. This has been a great rehearsal, and uh, 80s all over, coming soon. Thank you. Thank you.